We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 is where we'll start this morning. Emmaus, it's so good to be with you, to to worship with you, to sing and to pray and to confess our sins and read the scriptures and now to submit ourselves underneath God's scriptures, something that I don't ever want to take for granted. I pray that you don't either. And if you're visiting, welcome. I'm glad that you're here. My name's Sam. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I'm glad that you get to be here on this, the first day of a new sermon series. It's always exciting for us pastors whenever we get to start a new series. So I'm glad that you're here. <clears throat> I'm going to read uh, these, these two verses from 1 Peter chapter 1, and then we'll pray. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. These are the words of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Oh God, you are our God. Earnestly we seek you. Our souls thirst for you. Our flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So we have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, our lips will praise you. So we will bless you as long as we live. In your name, we will lift up our hands. Lord, give us this hunger of the psalmist, a soul hunger for you. Let us sit and meditate on your goodness this morning. O triune God, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, speak, Lord, for we, your servants, are listening. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. On this verse, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, the 4th century church father Gregory of Nyssa wrote these words. We are redeemed from death receiving the gracious gift of immortality through faith in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These names teach us that we mustn't connect the Holy Trinity with the lowly nature of a servant or created thing, nor anything unworthy of the Father's splendor. From faith in Holy Trinity comes our life, springing first from the Father, the God of all, flowing to us through the Son and working in us by the Holy Spirit. Having this full assurance, we are baptized as the Lord commanded. Believe what we are baptized into and maintain what we believe. Thus, our baptism, faith, and praise are to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This morning, we begin a seven-part sermon series on 
the doctrine of the Trinity. And if it's not obvious by now, I'm very excited about it. Um, I, I, I would point your attention to a, a blog on our, on our website, EmmausBlog.com. It has some, some resources for you to, to help uh, as you're working along through this sermon series with us, as well as uh, an explanation of some of the lines of the creed that may give some of you cause for pause this morning. Um, but... Uh, two resources that I want to put in front of you and recommend here from the pulpit. We don't typically do this, but I would recommend these two resources. Uh, this one is called The Trinity, an Introduction by Scott Swain. Uh, this is a very accessible biblical introduction to the doctrine of the Trinity. It's short, and it's one of those books that you can just open up with your Bible and immediately start uh, digging into this concept. And then this one is written by our very own Matthew Barrett, Simply Trinity, um, so, so Matthew Barrett is one of our pastors here at Emmaus. He'll be preaching some sermons in this series. And uh, he wrote this book, Simply Trinity. It gets into a lot of the same biblical foundations of the Trinity, like Swain's book, but it also gets into the historical development of the Trinity as well. And so uh, highly recommend both of those resources as we, as we work our, our way through this doctrine. So I'm very excited about this sermon series but if I'm honest, I'm also very anxious about it, obviously because of the, the topic itself, but also because this is by far going to be the most different, most unusual sermon series you've heard at this church. Our regular practice as a group of pastors is to preach through expositional sermon series through books of the Bible. The regular diet of preaching that you are used to receiving from us is for us to go verse by verse, section by section, chapter by chapter, through entire books of the Bible. So we'll pick books of the Bible like Jonah, or 2 Corinthians, or Nehemiah, or John, or Romans, all books that we've preached through, or like we'll do in the fall, the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll take a book of the Bible and we'll just read through it and preach through it verse by verse. That's what you're used to receiving from us, and we think for good reason. Right? Our conviction is that's the best steady, regular diet of preaching that you could receive from us. But sometimes it's important to step aside from that practice and preach through topics or doctrines. And so this sermon series is going to be very different. In fact, it's going to be very different even from the topical and theological series that we've preached in the past. I don't want to lie to you, brothers and sisters. This sermon series is going to stretch some of you. We're going to be introducing language that is unfamiliar to many of us. And we're going to feel tempted to think this language is unnecessary and pointless. We're going to be focusing a lot on the precision of speech and grammar. We're going to be talking from the pulpit about how we should and how we should not talk about God. And we're going to spend a considerable amount of time learning from the past listening to the great tradition of Christian thinkers of the faith who have wrestled with this, the, the issues that we're considering in this series for over 2,000 years. I don't know if you've thought about this, but where we stand in the 21st century, we have a massive heritage given to us, an embarrassment of riches of Christians who have been wrestling with doctrine, wrestling with God's word, reading God's word for 2,000 years. So gratitude for where God has placed us in this point in history should compel us to eagerly receive our heritage from the past. In other words, we should read our Bibles 
not only in the church, but also with the church. And not simply with the Christians who are around us, as non-negotiable and as crucial as that is, but also with the Christians who have gone before us. We should invite them to sit next to us as we're reading our Bibles, and we should learn from them. Jesus Christ promised in Matthew 16, 19, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So do we believe him or not? When we read the word of God with the people of God, including the people of God from the past, we are banking on Christ's promise that he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Now, let me just say on a personal note, as your pastor who loves you, I want to simply acknowledge that many of you are going through very difficult seasons right now. Pastoral ministry, after all, doesn't slow down or take a break so that we can teach a, a heady doctrinal series on the doctrine of the Trinity. There are hard things happening in the personal lives and in the marriages and in the families of our church this week and in this season, like every week and every season. And you should know this, brothers and sisters, if you're not in that kind of season, you should know that many of the people who are sitting next to you are. Many of you barely made it here this morning. You're struggling to keep your head above water, so to speak. And I know that if that describes you, if I were to ask you what kind of sermon you think you need this morning, the last thing you would say is an introductory sermon on a seven-part sermon series on the doctrine of the Trinity. And honestly, I may be inclined to agree with you. But brothers and sisters, I also know that our greatest need this morning, like every morning, is God. So we're going to, we're going to uh, bank on the sufficiency of God's glory this morning. We're going to, to trust that a heavenward gaze, getting an eye full of God's glory, so to speak, is not going to be a waste of time, regardless of what's happening in your life. You may need many things this morning. You may have come in here with many needs. You may leave here with many needs. But this I know for certain. One thing is most needful right now. You need God. So think of this series, which is a deep dive into the deep things of God, the depths of God, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. Think of this series as food for your soul. Bank on the sufficiency of God's glory this morning and come regardless of your problems and your worries and your anxieties and your grief and simply sit in the presence of God and meditate on his goodness. This morning, we're gonna consider the doctrine of the Trinity directly, but before we do that, I'd like for us to consider the value of a sermon series like this. So think of this not as the introduction to my sermon, but as an introduction to the whole series. I'd like to do that by sharing with you the purpose of this series and the tone of this series. First, the purpose of this series. Why preach a seven-part sermon series on the doctrine of the Trinity? Answer, because the God whom we worship is triune. We cannot worship God rightly until we come to know him truly. And this means, and listen to me very carefully, I say this without a hint of exaggeration. This means sound Trinitarian theology is absolutely necessary in order for us to fulfill our chief end as human beings. As human beings. The Westminster Confession of Faith's first question and answer are, 
Question, what is man's chief and highest end? Answer, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. That's what God made us for. He made us for himself. And to the degree that this truly is our chief end, Trinitarian theology is necessary. For how can one glorify God and how can one enjoy God without getting to know him? Who is this God that we are to glorify? Why ought this God be enjoyed? You can't answer those questions without Trinitarian theology. And brothers and sisters, this is very important. Good intentions simply aren't sufficient. A Muslim may genuinely want to glorify God as far as he knows when he bows down toward Mecca five times a day, but he doesn't glorify God by his genuineness. He is genuinely wrong about who God is, and so he is prevented from living out his chief end. Theology, theology makes the difference between glorifying God and glorifying an idol. That's what makes the difference. Consider the example of Leviticus chapter 10. So this is after Aaron, the very first high priest of Israel. This is after he was instructed by Yahweh himself on how God would be worshipped. That happened in Leviticus chapter 9. But then in Leviticus chapter 10, rather than following the clear example laid out in the previous chapter, Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's two sons, disregarded Yahweh's instructions. They assumed that God didn't care about how he was worshipped. And so they offered up, quote, strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded. That is where they went wrong, which he had not commanded. So God sent fire before them and consumed them, and they died on the spot. That's what God thought about their ingenuity. God cares about how we worship him, and how we worship him depends entirely on who we think he is. Jeremiah 9, thus says Yahweh, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understand and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. The doctrine of the Trinity matters. It matters because it gets at who God is, which means if we get it wrong, Everything else goes wrong. Simply put, there is no gospel without the doctrine of the Trinity. Friends, there is no way for our Trinitarian theology to go wrong without that impacting and perverting our understanding of the gospel. And we love the gospel here at Emmaus. We are a gospel-centered people, which means we should be a Trinitarian people. And if you don't believe me, on the stakes of this, let me call your attention to the sobering results of the Ligonier Ministries 2020 State of Theology Survey. Of the 3,002 participants who took this survey, 65%, this is two-thirds, 65% of those who identified as evangelical agreed with this statement. Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 65% of those who identify as evangelical said that Jesus is the first and greatest created being by God. Brothers and sisters, that's not Christianity. 
That's not orthodox Christianity. That is the ancient heresy of Arianism, and it propagates a gospel that cannot save. A created Christ cannot save you. So a series like this on the doctrine of the Trinity is painfully necessary. So if we get the Trinity wrong, everything else goes wrong, and if we get it right, we are well on our way to living out our chief end as human beings. Now, this doesn't mean, brothers and sisters, that it's necessary to have a mature, well-worked-out doctrine of the Trinity in order to become a Christian. Some of you are thinking, wait a second, I'm a Christian, and I've not thought about this doctrine nearly enough. Does that mean that I'm not truly a Christian? No, it doesn't mean that, but it does mean It does mean that you cannot be a Christian if you don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. The stakes really are that high. That's what it means to be a Christian. A non-Trinitarian Christian is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction of terms. So as Christians, therefore, we should care about this doctrine. It doesn't mean that you have to have a, a, a full grasp on everything that we're going to introduce in this sermon series, but it does mean you should care about it. You should care about this doctrine. So that's the purpose of this sermon series. Now what about the tone of this series? What kind of tone do we want to strike? Your elders intend for the tone of this series to be three things. Instructional, humble, and worshipful. Instructional, humble, and worshipful. And by instructional, I want to emphasize what the early church called catechesis. This is the process that the, the early Christians took those who were about to be baptized, the catechumens, They took them through this process where they learned the the ins and outs of the Christian faith that they were being brought into before baptism. And so they did this in in terms of questions and answers and recitation. There were truths that they were reciting together. So that's what we're going to do in this series. We're going to learn by reciting. And what we are reciting, what we are reminding ourselves of, are truths that have been held and taught and proclaimed throughout the history of the Christian church. They are words and concepts and categories that virtually every generation of Christians until the modern era have considered absolutely non-negotiable. Therefore, they're an essential part of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So we want this to be an instructional, uh, an instructional series where we're not embarrassed about introducing new ideas to you. So it's going to be instructional, but that also means we should receive these truths with humility. Now, we in the modern era are not used to talking about God the way that Christians of the past talked about God. There's going to be words that you're not familiar with that describe God in this series. And, And they, I would venture a guess, that if they could listen to many of the evangelical songs that the Christians sing today, they wouldn't identify with the God that we sing about. Lord willing, never at this church, okay? But songs that that evangelicals, professing evangelicals sing, the God that they sing about. Christians of the past would look at these songs and say, I don't recognize that God. So there is a difference between the way that we are used to talking about God and how they talked about God, but we should be slow to dismiss them. We should be slow to assume that we know better than they on what is essential and what is unimportant. And by asking you to embrace this kind of spirit of humility in this respect, I'm asking you to push hard against what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. Isn't that a great phrase? 
chronological snobbery. This is the tendency to think that recent or contemporary or new amounts to better. That those words are synonyms. New is better than old, of course. And if our age is anything at all, it is chronologically snobbish. It is not eager to come and learn from the past. It is eager instead to sit in the place of judgment over the past and to cancel anyone and everyone it deems is unworthy, according to its own contemporary standards. Our age, as a chronologically snobbish age, is profoundly ungrateful. That is ingratitude to refuse to learn from the past, and we should be countercultural in this respect. So before we dismiss the complex and difficult concepts related to the doctrine of the Trinity, we should ask why Christians have fought so hard to preserve them for nearly 2,000 years. Many of them at the cost of their own life. Might they have had a good reason for doing so? Right? This is that principle we learned from G.K. Chesterton. If you see a fence and you want to tear it down, before you're allowed to tear it down, you have to give an account for why it was erected in the first place. Before we get rid of this language from the past, we should ask, why have Christians fought so hard to preserve it for us? And when we do that, when we actually ask that question, I believe we will come to agree with those Christians on their importance. We will come to agree because nothing less than worship is on the line. And this brings me to the last aspect of the tone we intend to strike in this series. We want it to be instructional, humble, and also worshipful. This is the quote-unquote usefulness of a series like this. Now, I know that in our pragmatic age, we are used to demanding the practicality of things. We want the so what of the sermon. Some of you may have been thinking that. You're waiting for me to give you the so what of the sermon. We have this mentality that says, listen, if it can't be put into immediate practical use, I don't want to hear it. Now, what I want to commend to you in contrast to that way of thinking what I want to commend to you is the value of theological contemplation, not merely as a means to an end, but as an end in itself. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, sometimes the only charge left, the only practical application of a doctrine is to behold your God is to let yourself and your petty and selfish problems be forgotten for a moment. Just let them be dwarfed by his glorious grandeur to simply adore him, to be gripped like the way that Jonathan Edwards was when he read 1 Timothy 1, verse 17, which reads, Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Edwards writing, uh, write, writes this about those, that verse. As I read the, the words, there came into my soul and was, as it were, diffused through it, a sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense quite different from anything I ever experienced before. Never any words of the scriptures seemed to me as these words did. I thought with myself how excellent a being that was and how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God and be wrapped up to him in heaven and be, as it were, swallowed up in him forever. So we're going to, as a church, we're going to learn to embrace the contemplative life together, which is very different from what we're used to. We're going to give our attention unreservedly to God and his nature and be unembarrassed about that. 
And listen, I promise you, we're going to get a lot of devotional and practical benefits from it, but that's not why we're going to do it. We're going to give our uh, unreserved attention to God simply for no other reason than that he is worthy of it. What is worth our attention more than this? One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. We want to have that kind of mentality. We want to be like David in Psalm 27. So, with that longest introduction you've ever heard, remember it's the introduction to the series, not just the sermon. What have Christians of the past left us? by way of doctrinal heritage of the Trinity. Now we believe, your elders believe, that the time-tested standard of Trinitarian theology, the most faithful articulation of Scripture's teaching on God, comes to us in the form of the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed doesn't explain the mystery of the Trinity in, in, a, in a way that where we could comprehend it. That's impossible anyways. We cannot comprehend the mystery of the Trinity. And it's not because God is, it refuses to give us enough knowledge. It's because that knowledge is infinite because he is infinite and we are finite. So by definition, we can't comprehend it in such a way as to say, okay, I've figured out the doctrine of the Trinity. There's nothing new to learn. So the doctrine, the, the Nicene Creed doesn't explain the doctrine of the Trinity in that way. Instead, it preserves the mystery of the Trinity and presents that mystery with language that is fitting for who he is for the sake of worship. That's what it does at its best. Now, in future sermons, we're gonna spend a lot of time talking about the historical development of this creed and the theological disputes which occasioned it. But for now, I want to simply hold it up to you and present it as the standard of biblical fidelity to the doctrine of the Trinity. We're going to recite it together at the end of the sermon. But first, I just want to point out several features. So it's divided up into three primary headings. One is associated with the Father, one is associated with the Son, and one is associated with the Spirit. Now, I want to read to you the first couple of lines for each of those headings. It says, we believe in one God, the Father all-governing, creator of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. That's the first heading. Then we have the second heading. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten from the Father before all time, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created, of the same essence as the Father and through whom all things came into being. That's the second heading about God. And then the third, and, in, uh, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and life giver who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified. So again, we'll have much time to unpack these phrases in the creed and their biblical rationale throughout the series, but I want to simply point out to you the heart of what this creed affirms about the doctrine of the Trinity. This creed affirms, first of all, in each of these three headings, that there is one God, one Lord, one giver of life. It affirms, in other words, the unity and singularity of God. There is one God and one God only. There is one divine nature. One divine essence, which is undivided and is eternal. 
And this divine nature is therefore simple. It's not simple in the sense that it's easy to understand. It's simple in the sense that it cannot be divided up into parts or passions. All that is in God is God. So what that means is that God doesn't simply have goodness or love or holiness. You can't just say God has some, some goodness. He's got some holiness. He's got some love. No, God is goodness. God is love. God is holiness. He is absolute goodness. He's the standard of all of these things because that's who he is. We, what we experience when we experience God's love is not different from God's holiness. God's love for us is simply God's godness affectionately given. And likewise, what unbelievers experience when they experience God's wrath, that's not different from his goodness. He's not saying, I'm gonna stop giving goodness for a moment so that I can give some wrath. No, God's wrath towards unbelievers is God's godness given to them in light of human sin. God is eternally himself always. He doesn't change. We do. So that's what, this, this, uh, that's what we mean when we're talking about God's simple divine nature. It is undivided. His essence is one. That's what the creed affirms. There's one God, one Lord, one life giver, one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, and yet in himself, in that one undivided divine essence, that divine essence subsists eternally in what we call, and if you're looking for something to write down, this is what it is, subsists eternally in what we call three distinct modes of subsistence. We'll, give, we'll unpack that as we, as we go along. Three distinct modes of subsistence. There are three names, three persons, three subsistences that are identified at various points all throughout the scriptures with this one undivided essence. So for example, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Paul refers to this declaration of God's unity from Deuteronomy 6, 4. So Deuteronomy 6, 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Paul refers to that in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. But then he implicates Jesus in that divine unity. So he says, for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. So you should be thinking, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So this one undivided singular divine nature exists in himself eternally as the Father begetting the Son and the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. It's not like you have a genus, God, species, Father, Son, and Spirit. That's not how it works. There's one being and this being exists. For this being to exist, is for this being to exist as the Father begetting the Son and the Father and Son begetting the Spirit. Now, we don't use that word, or, sorry, Father and Son spirating the Spirit. We don't use that word beget very often. But it communicates something very important about the divine nature that the Father and Son share. We know, for example, that human fathers beget human sons. They don't beget dogs. Now, you can, you can get a dog, and you can bring the dog into your family, but it's not your only begotten dog because humans don't beget dogs, right? Nature begets nature, like begets like. And they also don't make sons, 
right? In the same way that they make a painting or a sculpture. You can make a painting or a sculpture and it can look like yourself, but you have not begotten that thing. You've made it, right? So there's a difference between making something and begetting something. And in the similar way, what God begets is God. The Father's nature is divine, so what he begets is also divine. But unlike human fathers begetting human sons, this divine begetting of the Father and Son has no beginning and has no end. It is an eternal begetting. It is an eternal generation. There was no before the Father begot the Son, like there was a before I begot my children. I actually changed. That is not the case with this divine nature. There is no before the Father begot the Son. This begetting is eternal. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. So what the creed affirms then is this, that between the chasm of the creator and the creature, between the eternal maker and the finite made, there is one being, one essence, one nature on the created side. And that one being eternally subsists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, kids, I, th I think you can help your, your parents out with this one. If you haven't been paying attention at all during the sermon, now is the time for, for you to pay attention because I'm gonna ask you a question. I think this is a way for you to help your parents. So kids, if we uh, divide up everything that, that has ever been uh, that's ever existed in, with a line. So you have over here on this side is everything that's ever been made. You have the trees, the stars, the sky, you, your mom, your dad, everything that's ever been made over here. And then over here on this side is the creator side. It's the maker side. It's the one who made everything. Over here, everything that's been made, over here is the maker. The question is this, which side does Jesus belong on? There we go. I see, I see some arrows pointing in this direction. He belongs on the creator side. That's exactly right. This is why the Father, Son, and Spirit are to be praised as one God forever. So here's my charge for you in closing. My charge for you in closing, brothers and sisters, is to press in on this sermon series for the sake of worship. Don't check out of this sermon series. Be willing to be stretched be willing to be challenged. Be willing to have your view of God grow and develop and in some cases actually corrected. You may lose some of your favorite Bible verses in this sermon series. What I mean by that is there are some Bible verses that are your favorite because of what you think they teach about God and in this sermon series, you're going to learn that they don't actually teach that about God. That's okay. Hopefully you can get some new favorites. So don't check out of this sermon series. The God who saved you, Christian, the God who saved you in the gospel is triune. We should content ourselves not only to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, but also with all our mind and strength. The God who saved us in the gospel is triune. And appreciating the gospel and worshiping the God of the gospel means, therefore, confessing his triune nature. God who saved you, believe, believer, is the eternal Father who sent the eternal Son in finite flesh to purchase your freedom from sin with his own blood, to unite you to himself by the powerful working of the eternal Spirit, to swallow you up and engulf you in the eternal fire of triune love and life. 
And brothers and sisters, in case you don't know this already, you've already been swept up into that triune life. You experience it every time you pray. Have you ever thought about this? Typically when you pray, most of the time, you're praying to the Father. The Father all governing, who created heaven and earth. Where do you get off? Coming into the presence of such a being. And whose name do you come to that God? You come to him in the name of Jesus Christ, your mediator. You come to God the Father in the name of God the Son. Where did you even get the desire to come to God the Father from? Well, that would be God the Spirit. You're coming to God the Father through the mediation of God the Son by the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. It's just a very simple example. It doesn't mean that we can't pray to the Spirit and the Son either. It's just that's typically what we do when we, when we pray. We are already caught up in this triune life if we're Christian. And so we, through uh, this this sermon series, we are going to be invited to deepen our understanding of this triune God that we already worship for his glory and our joy. You're invited to drink deeply from the glory of God in this series. And that, friends, is what your souls thirst for. You're feeling a lot of things that you need. That is your deepest need. This is true for you if you're a Christian and if you're a non-Christian. Christians have souls that are thirsty for God and they know it. Non-Christians have souls that are thirsty for God and they don't know it yet. And so if you're here today and you're not a Christian, hear me. This is what you're after in this life. This is what you need. This is what you've been made for. It was Augustine who said, that God made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. That's true for you if you're a non-Christian. It's true for you as well. And there is one way and one way only to find rest in this glorious triune God and that is in Christ alone. Our access point, if you will, into this ocean of triune love that we were created for is Jesus Christ. So come to Christ with your empty hands of faith. Don't come to him offering anything to contribute. He doesn't want it. Come to him with empty hands and he will give you himself, his life for yours, his death for yours, his resurrection for yours. He will welcome you into the eternal life and love of the Trinity according, as 1 Peter 1, 2 says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. The following audio is from Amaze KC. More information about Amaze KC is available online at www.amazekc.com.